Legend tells of students who settle down to their own studying, all of their own volition. They want to do well and they're prepared to work for it without it becoming all-consuming. However, fairy stories aside, up and down the country, exam year households tend to be filled with the same sorts of anxious questions. Have you got much homework? And don't you think you should be doing a bit of revision? Of course, at the other end of the spectrum, students can put themselves under too much pressure, struggling to find that balance. So just how can we help our young people to find this route to efficient self-managed study? And is it even really necessary? Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021, or at least what was intended to be their 2021 exams. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. Now, they could be broad themes such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teams, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at what it takes to be a self-regulated and independent learner. I'm delighted to be joined by Louise Lewis. Louise is a biology teacher at a secondary school in East Yorkshire. Alongside this day job, she's a research lead, a governor and a columnist for the Times Education Supplement. She also writes her own blog under the genius title of Misunderstanding Education, which looks at amongst other things, evidence-informed teaching practice. Louise, thank you so much for joining me today. Typically, the Easter holidays represents a milestone in the GCSE year. This is when revision gets serious, especially, of course, for those who may have been putting off study because now feels like actually there isn't ages left. Naturally, of course, this year is different without that focal point of exams. Many of our students, though, are still building in time for study. For some, they're conscious that they'll still have tests and assessments that their teachers might use to make up their grades, so they're using whatever time they can to go back over what they've learned throughout their entire course. Others, like Joe, are content to do exactly what's been instructed by their teacher, even if that doesn't necessarily feel like it's a lot. Louise, is there a noticeable divide between those students who study at home, above and beyond homework tasks, for example, and those that don't? Yeah, I think when we start to look at the habits that those sorts of students develop, so the students who are frequent studiers who have it as habitual practice, not only do we tend to see that they perform academically better than a student who perhaps is more inclined to cram, we see noticeable differences in things like test anxiety, how confident they are in discussions around their work, how they approach tests in general. This anecdotally, that's 
my experience but also when we look at a lot of research that's also indicative there as well that actually those students with the best study habits are the ones who are less likely to have those adverse effects from testing which we can all liken those feelings of being nervous around a test or you know that kind of high stakes exam that we're we're used to seeing annually with GCSEs and A-levels that you know that certain amount of nervousness is normal however those who perhaps feel like they may have it in the bag because they have continually worked and they've had that incremental gain in knowledge and skill throughout their course, whether it be GCSE, A-level or whichever equivalent, yeah, their approach to that situation is often much different and their confidence tends to be much higher. The sorts of questions they ask as well is often telling without knowing which student, if we were to put two side by side, the sorts of questions they would ask you as a teacher tend to be much more different as well. That's to say that the students who've been studying are asking a better quality question, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think quite often we we can shy away from things like better quality, but there is definitely a greater depth of knowledge, for example, and not just knowledge of the subject either, which of course we know that domain-specific knowledge is it's hugely important when whenever we think about any kind of learning, but it, it's not just about that. We can see that they're asking the nuances of study and looking at best approaches rather than just that scattergun, just give me something to get started. So... It's not just about the quality of the question around the knowledge, but also the quality of the approach to it too. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you then have to wonder whether or not the confidence that they feel in their subject-specific knowledge, as you say, their domain-specific, actually leads them to be more engaged generally because actually they're probably not as afraid if teacher's going to ask them the question. And so they can be a bit more inquiring and a bit more brazen is probably a bit strong, but sort of more forthright with being involved, which I guess is a virtuous circle, isn't it? If you're more engaged, you're likely to find out more and become even more engaged. Absolutely. And and I think, again, you know, I will always link back. I have my anecdotal experience, having been a teacher for a long time. But actually, when we do look at these kind of best bets and we're thinking about the best way to study or the way to study that may provide the greatest probability of success, actually, we see that that is often backed up by quite a lot of educational research. So, for example, we're talking about those students who perhaps might be a little bit more confident and how they might perform in class as a result. If we look at things like habit loops, for example, so Dewey did some research around habit loops and we've got that kind of cue and the reward and how that then leads to habit formation. And if we link that into the concept of motivation as well, and obviously Pepsi Creek, you know, he talks so much about motivation. If you've not seen his book, I would thoroughly recommend Unmotivated Teaching and how that's so intrinsically linked to that sense of success. Well, those students who are invested in their study, they're more likely to have experienced success in, in the strategies that they're using. And so therefore, I'll have a greater likelihood of of taking that risk because they've developed that motivation and confidence, which, as you say, it becomes that kind of perpetual cycle, doesn't it? Not only does the literature back it up, I'm not talking about confirmation bias here, but actually we see that in the classroom day in, day out. Now, I'm not saying, you know, I find it very difficult to talk in absolutes because I think when we look at educational research and when we, we look at best bets in the classroom, 
actually there are always outliers. Everything works somewhere, but nothing works everywhere. And that would apply the same for students as well. So just because your friend had a really great strategy that worked really, really well for them, doesn't necessarily mean that you will have the same success. But actually the likelihood of success is probably higher when somebody else has experienced it as well. And presumably that comes down to the specifics as well of a particular study method that works for one doesn't necessarily work as well or in the same way for another. But the broad stroke idea that cue to reward and those habit loops as you talked about or just not leaving everything for the last minute and building confidence in whichever way it works is bound to surely work for all students everywhere. I mean, that's that's got to be the thing that you want to strive for. From this conversation, if we were to strip away the idea of academic success or educational success, let's just look at our life. And when we experience a reward, we are more likely to pursue that activity again. That is human nature. It's not necessarily unique to education or or academic learning. It it is just life, isn't it? But certainly we're thinking about, you know, having motivated learners, having that longevity in study, having that reward is universal, I would say, to everyone. We think about specific strategies and those that are more likely to be successful. We could take, for example, Dunlosky's student toolbox. And if you've not read it, it's easily accessible online. In that toolbox, we can see that there are a number of strategies which are ranked for efficacy. And it's taken from a meta-analysis of multiple different studies. And actually, there are some things that are worthwhile students investing their time in. There are things that they are more likely to get rewards from. And there are things that are perhaps less useful. Not saying that they are without use completely but certain strategies are less likely to provide that academic reward and that incremental gain in knowledge thus confidence compared to others so if we take highlighting for example I'm sure if there are any teachers listening to this their students all have a really fancy packet of pastel highlighters because they're the favorites now their students work is probably beautifully highlighted Was that effective for them? Has that proven to have any gains in their learning? Probably not. However, if their students had subsequently spent time elaborating on that, then the likelihood is then that would be more successful in terms of knowledge retention and to test success thereafter. I love that idea that actually that although and the moment you said highlighting alarms went off all around here, which we've now had installed since talking to Kate Jones about retrieval practice. But actually, there is still something in it. And while it may not be the academic driver, as you talked about before, actually, if the student starts to feel, well, actually, I've I've accomplished something. And that accomplishment might be sat down to dig out the pastel highlighters. Although in my day, it was only fluorescent yellow and pink. I don't even think fluorescent blue was a thing back then. But that they would at least feel that they've made a contribution. And then you can presumably use that as the stepping block to say, well, great, now let's try let's try something else in the toolkit. With the students at my school, so I've, I've done quite a lot of work, particularly with key stage four students, so year 10, year 11, but also moving into sixth form as well. I've done quite a lot of work with them about how to spend their time in terms of study. And actually what I don't want students to do is to completely discount things like highlighting or or note-taking, for example. But equally, what I don't want them to do is to stop there. It's very much a starting point for us where you would review that work. And 
before we can get to that point of retrieval, there needs to be something to retrieve. And so if that means spending a proportion of time studying it, and if for that student that does involve a good pastel highlighter, well, I'm not going to complain about that because I think there is an argument when we are thinking about motivated, independent learners that starting somewhere is super important and having that engagement is probably, well, it is the crux to them achieving that success and moving on to actually for them what would feel a much more risky strategy because there's a potential they might not get something right you know their perfect notes might not be perfect anymore by attempting to do that retrieval which you know in in itself it can feel in the first instance quite high stakes for them so we have to have a comfortable starting point for them And now that will vary from student to student, depending upon their prior habits and depending upon previous successes. But I think there is definitely an argument for doing what might be slightly lower efficacy, but could be huge gains in engagement for students. I absolutely love that. The idea that actually there is no wrong starting point so long as you start. And I think we as parents certainly can tend to become quite focused on either a very visible product and output, whether that's a beautiful mind map or, as you tend to see with Studygram Instagram accounts, phenomenally beautiful pages of notes. But actually, that in itself isn't necessarily success, is it? Because they've still got to, they've got to build on that. They need to feel that it's achievable. I can do this and actually want to do more, as you say, that reward. And actually, it should be clear that when you're talking about rewards, I'm presuming it's not of a financial or other kind of inducement, but more the growth mindset kind of reward of feeling that level of success as being the thing that they want to have more of. Yes, certainly. And I think as well, you know, I mean, we could go off on a complete tangent here when we think about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And Again, we want students to be intrinsically motivated. We want them to have that self-motivation to pick up a pen, to think now's the time my flashcards will come into their own and I am going to retrieve, retrieve, retrieve and have all of the benefits that using flashcards effectively, for example, would bring. However, not every student is going to all of a sudden walk into you know, a study room, whatever that looks like to them, and be that motivated student. We both know there'll be times when you or I won't have been motivated students, you know, just by default, we are good learners. But actually, were we always the perfect learner? Probably not. I know I certainly wasn't. And so our students would be the same. So having a balance between potentially some extrinsic motivation, that small reward and that could just be the student deciding that they can actually spend 10 minutes on Instagram because they've just spent half an hour retrieving with their flashcards it could be you know a chocolate bar whatever they decide but that reward shouldn't be the be all and end all we do need to get from that point across the spectrum into that intrinsic motivation which only comes about really by achieving success and it's the success itself that is the reward. Well, so I love where you started and you talked about the the habit loops and that if you get your cue and then you get the reward and then that can lead to the motivation because actually what we tend to think of, I think, and certainly as parents, and I've talked from my own experience and having spoken to a number of others, is 
that we tend to think, well, what do you want to be? What's the end goal? What's your career going to be? How are you going to get to that career? Well, if you want to be a vet or an accountant, or a, you're going to need to go to college and university, in which case you're going to need to work. That's not motivating for so many students. But actually, if you can get into the habit, just break the back of it and make a start, build the queue, and then get the reward from it. And as you say, the Instagram piece or the success piece, so that actually you can realise, well, I can do this, it's in my gift, and then maybe make it a bit more stretching or do these other kinds of things. But that in itself can become the motivating factor. What I wanted to just pick up on was when you were talking about setting the rewards there, you were talking very much about the students setting their rewards, which I think does bring us back. I'm trying to pull myself back from the tangent you identified. And that's that actually, how important is it that the students do do this for themselves and not the parents or the teachers or any other external factor sort of trying to direct them and really trying to get to that level of importance or the impact that that self-direction has. As a teacher, if I was asked to design my perfect student, which I know could perhaps be a controversial concept, the perfect student would be someone who would be self-motivated, independent, was able to regulate themselves. As a teacher, that having a student who could do that, that's a complete gift. And it's a gift for that child as well, because you know, having that level of self-regulation, you know the rewards that that will bring for them, not only within your lesson or within that period of their schooling, but throughout life as well. So yes, it, it is really, really important. However, I think as parents, as teachers, it's so important to realise that they're not born that way. No child is born to be self-motivated. They don't have this innate set of skills to be brilliant at regulating and setting their own rewards. You know, they're still children and their needs, their wants, they're as diverse as ours. And I think we need to be very much in the habit of modelling that self-regulation as parents, as teachers, and just teaching them how to do it. How do you get to that point of making what is the best choice but doesn't always feel like the good choice at that point in time it's not easy to do it it's consistent effort however the rewards we've mentioned that quite a lot but however the rewards are great both for them and for you and so when you're talking about self-regulation is that different to what you might think of as independent so for me if a child is an independent study then it might mean that their parent doesn't have to say to them don't you think it's time you got on with your homework? Is there a difference or can we use self-regulation and independent interchangeably? In the most part, we possibly could. However, with self-regulation, there comes quite a lot more nuance in terms of what us as educators might expect from a student who was self-regulating. And I think we can have a student who is really effective at being independent, could perhaps cook their own breakfast, get themselves dressed every day, do all of those things. But actually, they walk into their geography classroom and they have no idea what strategy to use in order to solve a geographical problem. So does that mean that that child is no longer independent? No, they're still an independent child. Does it mean that they're struggling to self-regulate in geography? Probably yes. And so I think it's worthwhile as educators being familiar with the difference between them and, and knowing that actually a person isn't either or it's more of a spectrum across all of the domains in their life however do I think it's super important for students to 
use those words themselves or for parents to be completely au fait with self-regulator or independent? Probably not, no. It's more just about using appropriate strategies to support them to self-regulation within our subjects and you know, within academics. And so what are those strategies that you talk about that you might look to encourage self or to get to self-regulation amongst students? I think there's an argument here that is domain-specific in the most part. I think certainly in education and particularly with the kind of rising popularity of things like the Education Endowment Foundation who highlight that when we employ metacognitive and self-regulatory strategies with students within our classrooms, then we see plus seven months progress for those students. As educators, we jump on that bandwagon, don't we? So metacognition, self-regulation, it's become super popular because all of a sudden we're going to have these students who aren't 15 anymore. They're 15 plus seven months now and they've got all of that progress that seven months would bring, which is almost a school year. I think that's wonderful. I think, you know, that the fact that we are engaging with those sorts of things is super important. But I don't think there's a one size fits all. I think it depends, to get back to my original point, it depends on your domain. For example, if if we think about self-regulation and metacognition, well, metacognition has got a really important word within that, and that's cognition. We need that knowledge in order to apply those meta strategies. And so I think within subject areas, it's necessary to model what effective self-regulation looks like as a biologist, as a geographer, as a chemist, as a linguist, you know, and it will look different across the board. However, I think there are some things that are common when we think about self-regulation. And I think being familiar with having strategies that can support your learning within that subject, just knowing that there are strategies, knowing where you could identify those strategies. So something just as simple as knowing that if you have a textbook and you don't understand a phrase within that textbook or a piece of subject-specific vocabulary, well, actually, you can turn to the glossary at the back and that can explain it. If there's a specific thing you're looking for in a textbook, well, by all means, use the index. That can sound so simple for a student. Of course, they should use a glossary. Of course, they should use an index. The amount of students who don't realise that that's there, it's not just words that are filling up the back end of a book. It's, yeah, and I think being familiar with those metacognitive strategies that are transferable but also domain-specific are important and really having that ability within your subject to be able to plan their learning, to monitor it and to evaluate it. That would be the overarching appearance of somebody who can plan, monitor and evaluate. That would be what a good self-regulator would look like within a subject. But what those in turn look like for each subject would be different. I think it's really interesting because, as you say, we tend to, as part of this series, I suppose, have looked at the broader strokes, forgetting, of course, that there is a nuance to the way that a biology study session or revision session might work to a history or a linguistics one. Now, we might know that flashcards are universally good, but how they apply and also how they apply for one student is going to differ possibly quite wildly. But I still I love when you then sort of wind all of that back and look at that commonality that between sort of the planning, doing and monitoring to see how they're going on and then the evaluation actually probably works across all subjects 
and beyond the subjects. It's This is what you need to do when you're a middle-aged man doing DIY projects, I say with Easter holiday experience, that this is what I need to do to get my IKEA out of a box and up on its side, hopefully. How's it going? And then how did I do? What do I need to change the next time I do it? So within that, are there sort of other aspects that have proven to be helpful for students? More, I guess, along that monitoring piece. Is that the kind of thing that they should be doing while they're studying, a sort of a a moment of reflection? How am I going against plan? That kind of thing. When we think of truly self-regulatory students, it is someone who would be monitoring what they're doing throughout. So, for example, if we take your IKEA example, you're not going to wait until you finish building that wardrobe to decide that the shelf is in the wrong place, probably. You'll probably identify that quite, or at least I hope you would, or identify that the... the moment I'm holding the spare screws, typically. <laughs> yeah, or that you've, you've put the side panels on the wrong way around, so you've got the chipboard facing out, for example. I'm assuming that you're an effective DIYer, I'll give you that credit, then... I would hope that you would monitor that as you went along and adjust your strategies based on the strategies you've picked up from all of that IKEA furniture that you've ever built. And you would then adjust that in order to make sure that the end product was effective. Now, then you would evaluate it and say, well, actually, I've done a damn good job. It's standing up. It's holding my clothes. I've done okay with that. But it's taken quite a lot of experience for you to get to that point to be able to sort out all of the different components, the dowels, the screws, all of those things, you know to put those separately. You know to make sure you've got everything that you need. So it is an ongoing process and it can only be an ongoing process because somebody probably showed you how to do it initially and then you had lots of practice at it. So yes, the monitoring is an ongoing and adjustment phase, I would say. Although completely accidental, I'm not going to take any credit for foresight or planning on it. I think DIY illustration works really well. And actually, from what you've, what you've just said, actually, there's, there is definitely something in that, isn't there? That if, as a grown-up, you can relate to the fact that all of us at one point have done this wrong, chipboard on the wrong side, which actually exactly what happened to me. It's a little alarming, to be fair. <laughs> But so you know, well, next time I won't do it. And it's that adjustment piece. And I think if I bring us back to where we started looking at the highlighting, actually doing the highlighting to get going is fine because that's what you're doing. But actually, how effective is it? Is it actually giving you the kind of results that you need in evaluation? And if not, then adjust. But actually, that starting point wasn't the end of the world because it's where they started. If it's not doing the job for them, if their chipboard is the wrong way around, they need to start switching it up maybe and and looking for something else. Now, I guess, though, that the benefit of that is how much time that they've got. And, of course, the sooner we can embed these kinds of good habits, the better that it'll be, I presume. Absolutely. And And I think, you know, I've spoken quite a lot about exam year students, but there's no reason why these sorts of things can't start in secondary school right from the beginning. Actually, I know some really effective primary educators who employ strategies, you know, maybe not using some of the language that we might use at secondary school, but actually employing these strategies to show students really early on, look, you've done all of this hard work in lesson and you get to remember it for a really long time as well if you do all of these things that I say or you spend your time wisely. I think that's something that is often not recognised by students because, you know, they think time spent is enough, whereas we need to shift that narrative to time spent wisely. So starting early absolutely is key. 
but there might be some students or parents who are listening to this who know that they've got seven weeks left and actually they don't have the luxury of discovering which is the best strategy. There's the Chinese proverb, isn't there? When's the best time to plant a tree? A hundred years ago, when's the next best time now? And that's exactly the saying that I use with my students. When's the best time to start revising? Start of year 10, start of your GCSEs. And when's the next best time today? That's, I think, we need to be realistic about it. If you are in a position where you're in year 11 and you've got a few weeks left, well, make the most of that time. It can make a real difference. And also, I mean, it's looking at cutting your cloth accordingly, isn't it? So there is, there's only seven weeks and so you're not likely to cover the whole course because it took two years to get here. So actually highlighting, finding those areas that you're perhaps struggling with more or historically you've shown that you are, or even with foresight. I mean, there is, there's a lot to be said, I think, this year for those students who've already been through enough that there's likely to be more guidance, I think, from teachers, isn't it fair to say, that around what's coming up, what areas they should focus on in order to demonstrate their potential. And so rather than a scattergun approach, they could be much more focused by one means or another on the kinds of things that they really need to look at. Absolutely. That is an advantage for our current year 11 students. But actually that same tale could be told for year 10 students who are moving through school now because we'll start with the year 11 students. Yes, they are likely to be told you're going to do an assessment on X, Y, Z. Okay. Most subjects, most schools probably won't have finished courses anyway. So it's not the whole of the syllabus. And regardless of people's opinion on the exam situation, it is the way it is. And, you know, that's the situation we find ourselves in. And our students have been through enough. They've spent a long time in lockdown in what is their formative years. So they deserve a good chance to show their best self in whatever assessments their schools decide to do for them. And so they can be super targeted. They don't need to cover everything. They need to cover what their teacher tells them to do. But then equally, if we then take a broader view and think about our year 10 students as an example, their time studying for GCSEs, or if we look at key stage five students, or A-level students, their time has been less affected during their exam years and they will do assessments. They're doing working class. They're being Q&A'd by teachers. And through that process, they're getting feedback. So they are starting to develop that bank of knowledge of, Actually, I'm really good at that, but I'm not so great at that. They're already getting that information now. And so making sure that they use that to target their revision independent study is really, really key because we tend to find that students will do the things that they feel most comfortable with because that provides the rewards. I can draw an animal cell. I can label an animal cell. I'm really good at that. So I'm going to do that because that makes me feel good because I'm getting a reward, I've been successful. But actually the reward lies in doing the things that you're not yet successful in and using the feedback from your teachers to develop that particular area. Which I guess is the other part of the evaluation aspect, isn't it? That the evaluation doesn't just come from a test result. So I planned for this test, I monitored my way through, I got, and this is how I felt. Actually, the evaluation aspect comes from feedback from anywhere related to that subject. So as you say, that input into this process, where should you be focusing? 
where are your strengths, where are the opportunities or the challenges can start right now for year 10 and for year 11 who are focused on carrying on with subjects as well, I imagine. We have students who perhaps historically, and I I think nationally this is an issue, that we talk about tests and we talk about assessments and it's all very high stakes and it's all determining who you are and what you're worth. Whereas if we can build a culture where most assessments, most tests are not high stakes, they are just part of that learning experience for our students, then they are much more likely to be receptive to the feedback and are likely to build upon that rather than just seeing I'm a nine, I'm a four, I'm a, you're none of those things, you're a learner. And that's what the whole point of doing those practice questions was, is to practice and to see what we need to practice a bit more on and move on from there. Because you say evaluation is so important for that, isn't it? It's understanding, actually, this is where things didn't go as expected and what can you do about it? It's not just the result in and of itself, you're an eight because I mean that what does that mean for the future what does that mean for anything else what it shows maybe is that you or what you'd like to see is that it shows you've overcome an adversity or you really did well in a piece that wasn't necessarily going in the right way I mean these are the kinds of skills including some of that metacognition that you talked about before that sit underneath it that becomes so much more valuable as our young people become older people who have to go into the world of work and become lifelong learners. Something that I quite like to do with my students when we think about practice assessments that we might have done is an exam wrapper and Alex Quigley talks about this in his blog on revision and I've seen it used in lots of different guises but the whole focus of that is looking at how they feel when they went into the assessment what had they done to prepare for the assessment and it really is about opening up that dialogue with students and being honest and actually if you didn't do any preparation well tell me you know I I need to know that as well and what was the barrier to you doing any preparation and how can we overcome that barrier and then taking that same piece again and reflecting on how they felt afterwards were they pleased with their performance Or actually, would they have liked to have done better? What strategies would they keep? What would they swap? Is there someone in the room who could perhaps help them to use a more effective strategy if they achieved on a question that somebody else struggled with, for example? What helped them with that? And anecdotally for my students, it just opens up that dialogue with everyone that we're all learning. No one has it perfect. And the whole point of that was just for us to practice it. And that provides that kind of clear platform for them to evaluate not just the domain specific knowledge that that assessment was on but the strategies that help them get to that point and it is more about that kind of revision exam technique strategy that is the key for that and students can do that on their own they can do it as an evaluation for their own revision the online platforms that allow for quizzing for example they can do all of that it's quite straightforward but of course they need to know that they can do it, that they should do it, and it is an effective use of their time as well. And also the kind of thing I guess that parents can do quite comfortably as well and, and helps us to move away from that judgment piece of simply looking at the result. I got 60% in my maths test. Where do you go from there? Was it good? Is it bad? How did the rest of the class go? I mean, these then become hazy 
bits of information around a physical or an actual result. Whereas in actual fact, if we were talking about, well, how did you feel going into it? Did you feel you'd prepared enough? How do you think your score reflects the amount of effort that you did? And is there anything you'll do later? Actually, at this stage, as you say, it's not high stakes. We can just keep the focus and the emphasis on the process that our children are going through rather than worrying so much about how the numbers are looking at the end. Absolutely. In fact, I found one of my old science books from when I was a student, so from a very long time ago. And even as an adult, as a teacher, first thing I went for was the grade I'd got at the piece at the bottom of a piece of work in my school book. And I, I had a little chuckle to myself, but what was quite telling was because it was you know, it was in my biology book, unsurprisingly being a biology teacher, and I'd got an A for effort, but a B for attainment. And the reason why I'd got a B for attainment in this particular piece of work was because the pencil I'd used to draw my scientific diagram was not sharp. So that was my little piece of feedback use a sharper pencil. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively good learner. So of course I would have taken that feedback being a self-regulatory person. Next piece of work, what didn't I do? Well, I didn't care about that feedback, did I? Because I got an A and a B and that was all I cared about. And my pencil was still not sharp enough. And I think that as silly as that story is, I think it, it's quite telling in that that that's what our students do. They jump straight to whatever grade percent they got. And that becomes the defining factor. It's not about, well, actually, I, I didn't quite demonstrate how well I can calculate the circumference of a circle and how will I do that better? They just get caught upon that. And I think as parents and teachers, it's our responsibility through the questions and the conversations that we have with students and the language that we use to make sure that that isn't the defining factor, that we use language around the effort that they've made and the strategies that they've used to get to that point. And as I said previously, what would they keep and what would they need to swap? Louise, thank you so much for your time and for taking us around what feels like a full gambit of studying at home. It can be really difficult to know where to start with our teens if they're not naturally self-directing. Where does the motivation come from? How will they know what techniques to use? And what do you do if it's not working? What I was struck by chatting to Louise is her almost blasé acceptance of this. This is normal. Because, of course, it is normal. We all feel like this at different points in our own lives. So why should our children be any different? So the somewhat flippant answer, perhaps, to where do they start is somewhere anywhere. The important thing is that they do start and that they give it a go. Certainly, we found at the study buddy that in the absence of motivation, structure and habits can go a really long way. It's important to remember that getting the result isn't actually the only outcome here. And I thought it was interesting in talking to Louise, although perhaps on reflection a little unsurprising, that students who study find benefits outside the academic results. They're experiencing reduced anxiety, they're more confident, they have higher engagement. And as we talked about with Louise, this is very much a virtuous circle. Students do the work. They reap the rewards of whatever nature that might be. They like that feeling and those benefits, and so they do more work. 
And this is the habit that we really want them to get into. As we heard from Louise, while the approach to revising and studying at home will most likely vary by subject, there is a common model for self-regulated learning, a pattern if you like. Plan, monitor and evaluate. The planning aspects are important. And as Louise says, without it, there's a, there's a real risk that you'll end up focusing on the aspects that are comfortable. Now, we've talked about this quite a lot, and you can certainly find out more about our own approach to planning revision on our website. What I thought was particularly interesting in talking to Louise was the idea of monitoring as you go along. Now, for me, as I said at the time as a middle-aged man, the analogy of this DIY project was really chiming with me, and I'm sure that there are plenty of ways in which we could make this relevant for our young people out there. But if something isn't working, and you realise it at the time, don't wait until the end to remedy it. And in evaluation, think about what changes will be made in the future. That might be in the planning stage, might be in the execution of the student study. But learning about what is working and what isn't working, and then acting on it, is a vital skill for life. Often we'll find that young people need a catalyst to get going. For many, it's the looming finality of their GCSEs in the form of an exam. But, as we've heard, the sooner we can encourage our young people to get going, the more productive their self-regulation can be. The dual benefit here, of course, as we've heard from previous episodes on retrieval practice, is that this form of spacing can also really help to strengthen the memory bonds and serve them in good stead when it comes to their exams. It can feel like an odd one, this whole area. How can we parents encourage our children to not need us to encourage them? But here's the thing. It's a real aspect, isn't it? Many of us, I suspect, and I certainly hold my hands up to this, will have spent a lot of time in our children's early school life taking an overly active role in projects. Certainly, I've spent more than my fair share of evenings gluing and sticking whatever school project was on the go at the time. So it's little wonder that our children may struggle to do schoolwork independently now. But what Louise was telling us is that with the right wrapping, the questions that look at the process and not necessarily the results, and by focusing on the habits and the rewards, we can still help our young people to become more self-regulating. Now, perhaps they won't all become the model of the perfect student, as Louise explained, but they will be in a much stronger position to reach their full potential. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode as interesting and as useful as I have. If you did, would you take a moment to leave a five-star rating and perhaps a review too? It really does help us to reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, you sharing the link to this and other episodes with your friends on social media is always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.